It's good to be back again. Uh, at the earlier service, he said something about, I meet with an older pastor. I have no idea who that is. I told you the last time I was here that I, I get my hair done this way to get some respect. Because I found that when you have dark hair, you just don't get any respect. And I'm trying to get some respect, so I'm doing the best I can. Nickel and dimed. Ever heard that phrase? Yeah, you've heard that phrase. Nickel and dimed, you know, you're cheap, you're not taking care of your obligations, you, you're, you're uh, tight with the money. Well, that's not exactly the way I'm using it, though. That's what the title of the book comes out to be. It's by Barbara Ehrenreich, Nickled and Dimed on Not Getting By in America. Really interesting book. Uh, interesting because I, I know nothing about uh, the working poor, uh, working poor in our country. And she didn't either, and she was a successful writer, so she wanted to write a book about the working poor in our country, and she decided wisely, and I'm not sure I could do this, but wisely that over a year's time, she was going to become one of them. And she was going to get uh, minimum wage jobs, if that, in various cities around the country. And so she traveled for maybe a year, a little bit less than that, I guess, until she finally came to a point where she felt like she understood what it was like. And so she wrote this book, and it's called Nickel and Dime on Not Getting By in America. It is a heartbreaking read. So if you want to read something that makes you happy, don't read this book. But if you want to read something that really makes you feel like you know what somebody else is going through, it's a great book to do that. And uh, if you're like me, it will bring you to a, a new level of recognition and, and be a corrective in terms of your attitude. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're, you're like I am maybe. You think, well, they just don't try hard enough. Not, not the one she was talking about. Well, they, they just, uh, they're just lazy, you know? They're just lazy. And I didn't find that with at least the one she writes about. Well, well they, haven't, they haven't really stepped out and done what they need to do. Well, that's true with a lot of people, I'm sure. And, and, and I, I don't doubt that, but that's certainly not true with a lot of people that she writes about. So I would encourage you to get that book. It is such a great corrective for attitudes. But I mention it this morning because I was thinking about that book as I thought about the shepherds who came to worship Jesus that we talk about every year, and their story comes up pretty much every year. And I begin to think, boy, they are a lot like uh, the people that Barbara Ehrenreich writes about. They are, in my term, little people, okay? N not little like this, and, and not, not little like this, and, and not little in terms of money or uh, in terms of position or status or power or anything like that, but I mean... I mean, little in a different sense in which uh, I'm using it this morning, and maybe that'll be helpful to you. So let's focus on that for a while. And if you have your Bible, you're welcome to look at this on the screen, or you can turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I want to read from verses 8 through 20 of that chapter. Luke writes, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby was lying in the manger. 
When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Shepherds. Who are, who are these shepherds? I mean, we know something about shepherds maybe in the 21st, about that much I know about shepherds in the 21st century. But this was going back to the first century, so you have to relocate in terms of your mind and think about it and ask the question, who are these shepherds? And when I asked that question and began to study it, I began to see that they are not necessarily bad people. Nothing wrong with the shepherds. There's nothing to critique them for. But if you go back into the first century, you find that... Uh, there's a lot of shepherds around, in fact. And if you go to the Older Testament, as well as the Newer Testament, listen, I've got to teach you something. This is no charge, this is free. It's Older Testament and Newer Testament. Not Old Testament, not New Testament. Just like it's not old pastor and young pastor. It's older pastor, okay? And, okay, it's a favorite. I want to tell everybody about that. If you go to the Older Testament, you'll find uh, the man whose star is on the flag of the country of Israel. What's his name? David, yeah, you know a shepherd. Yeah, David became a king. He was a shepherd to start. Amos was a prophet of the Older, Older Testament. He was a shepherd. So there's lots of shepherds. In fact, you come to the Newer Testament, and you'll find Jesus is a shepherd. In fact, he has the audacity to say that he is the good shepherd in a class all by himself. In fact, if you look at the Bible very long, you'll find that frequently the picture is given that we are the sheep. That is not necessarily a positive picture, by the way, uh, and that God is our shepherd. So this thing is woven throughout the scriptures because it was so much a part of the first century and the older centuries before that. But in spite of that, in spite of the frequency of that picture, when you look at shepherds in the first century and their reputation, it is, let me put it in my words, not so good. You know, really not so good. Not positive. For one thing, they came from the lowest caste of society. They were people from the other side of the tracks, if you know what I mean. And I'm talking not about the owners of the sheep. I'm talking about the hired hands who took care of the sheep. These are the ones who are from the lower caste of society and come from the other side of the tracks. In fact, Rabbinic writers who came centuries later used to look at shepherds and say that they were dishonest and untrustworthy. <laughs> That's a label to get, huh? Not really. Not one that I want, not one that you want either. Some scholars believe that these shepherds raising sheep just six miles away from uh, Jerusalem were raising them for the purpose of sacrificing the temple. You say, oh, well, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. But it makes them ritually unclean because they're handling shepherds. They're butchering shepherds. They're, they're, they're cleaning shepherds. So they're in tough shape in terms of reputation in the first century. Awfully hard to recover from that kind of designation. Awfully hard for anybody to see you as the uh, lowest of the low especially in the first century. There was no upward mobility for most people. If you were stuck with the label of shepherd, that's how people see you. Not so good. Which to me, you know, maybe just me, to me makes me wonder, why would God include them in the story? I mean, really, come on. He's building a kingdom, isn't he? You don't do that with shepherds. Some people say, well, you don't do it with the Gentiles either. And God brought in the Gentiles, and they were the Magi, and I, I got 
I agree with you there. But at least, the, at least the Magi were powerful men. They had something to give. The shepherds had nothing to give. So that God would include them in the story about his son coming to the earth and taking on human flesh seems like, wow, that was, maybe that wasn't thought out, Lord. No, he used them. He used them. And the reason why he used them is because folks like the shepherds know their need. They know who they are. Not all the time. I, I get it. I understand that. There's no guarantee. People on the bottom rung of the ladder may not know their need, and they may be just as resistant as anybody else. And, and I've known lots of people on the top of the ladder and success and all that who know their need, and they, they bow the knee to Jesus. They know their need for God's help in their life and his saving influence. But really, for the most part, somebody like shepherds, it's, it's easier for them to say, I got nothing. Because that's true. They had nothing to bring to God. In fact, they're not in control of their life. A lot of people are on a daily basis. The Roman soldiers are in control. Uh, the priests in the temple are in control. Uh, the, 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 the rabbis are in control. The, everybody's in control. And what they do is they tell the, tell the shepherds, okay, you line up here and you do that. And, and that's what the shepherds do because they don't have any control they don't have anything they can do about their life. In fact, I wonder if one of the reasons why the shepherds identified so clearly with Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus is because they've been there. Maybe they kept their animals there when they weren't out in the fields. Uh, maybe, this is a wild idea, but maybe one of them was born there because that's the kind of thing that happens to shepherds. That's their story. That's their life. I bet you they felt just as helpless as Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph couldn't do anything to get a decent place to give birth to a baby. Come on. No control. Well, that's the way it was for the shepherds. That's a typical shepherd story. They had no problem identifying with Jesus and Mary and Joseph because they had no control. And maybe you're in the same boat. Oh, I'm, you look successful. When the lights go on and people look at you, they're going to point to you and say, boy, he's got it together. Whatever together means to them, you know, in terms of your life in general and discipline and those kinds of things, or maybe it's money, or maybe it's your position in the corner office and all that. But deep down in the heart, I've known a lot of successful people who seem to be very powerful and are on the streets, but inside, they know. <laughs> they know there's something really dent and broken on the inside. And they've got a, they've got a hole in the, in the middle of them that was was left there by God so that they would come to realize that, that God has to fill the hole. And if God doesn't fill the hole, you know, we could try to pump other stuff into it. You can name the things to pump into it, but it doesn't do it. It, it, it just doesn't get filled unless it's filled by God himself. And so sometimes people who don't have anything know quickly, but sometimes it's guys who are broken on the inside that come to, to recognize, I, I don't have much to offer. In fact, I don't have anything to offer. Maybe it's from your own choices in life, and, and uh, you've made choices that ultimately make you feel like writing loser across your forehead, because that's the way you feel. And maybe you have every reason to feel that way, I don't know. But what you feel, bottom line is, I have nothing to bring to the table. I, I just have nothing to bring to the table, and everything I've tried to bring to the table has turned out to be smoke and mirrors, and I, it isn't any good, so I have nothing or maybe you've come to realize that you really don't have a lot of control in terms of what happens on a daily basis. And it's not because somebody's beat you up, it's because you've come to terms with reality. And a lot of us have come there. 
Maybe that's where you find yourself. And if that's where you find yourself, standing beside the shepherds, let me tell you that for you, this sounds like great news of great joy. I mean, this is the best news you've ever heard. And you've reacted that way to it today, last year, year before, middle of the year, whenever. Not everybody thinks that. It's not good news for everyone. In fact, it's not good news most of all for people who are in control and don't want to give up control. Now, you know about Herod in the Christmas account. Herod is in control, but he's so afraid that this, this boy who's been born is going to take control that he makes sure that the boys under two in Bethlehem are slaughtered. I mean, that's how far it can go. I've never seen it go like that, but I've seen husbands who feel like they're losing control when their wife comes to faith in Jesus and their lives begin to change and they take on this new aura and they realize, I, I can't control her anymore. I've seen parents turn that way because their teens have come to faith in Christ and their lives have changed and they didn't like what they had before, but they don't like it now either because they have even less control. Somebody outside them is controlling their teenager. They don't like to give up control and there's lots of people for whom it's not good news because they're losing control. May sound strange to you, but for lots of people who have been beat up by life, it's not good news either on, a, on occasion. They can't imagine that God could love them. Nobody else does. Mom and dad don't. My, my, uh, my friends don't. Everybody fails me. So why would God care about me? And so Christmas passes, and it wasn't good news. It was bad news as far as they're concerned. Is that how you feel? You're such a mess that nobody could listen to you or think you have anything to contribute. I, I hear you. I understand. You are one of many. Or maybe by the grace of God, you have come to a place where you have seen uh, the message of those angels and you've heard it in the same way that the shepherds have heard it and you've said, oh, this is the best news. You see, it's good news for little people. Yeah, that's who it's good news for. It's good news for little people. And, and again, I want to say this so you, you, you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it has anything to do with little in terms of, of economic output or income. It has nothing to do with that. It's not little in terms of physical stature. It's not, it's not little with, in terms of how many best friends I have on Facebook or some other, other means. It's, it's not that. It's little in a different way than I, I really... I see in the shepherds, and I hope that you can see yourself. Let me give you some examples that sway my thinking. Moses was a little man. You say, wait a minute, I'm going to see Exodus. Don't tell me that. They're going to picture him as 800 feet tall. Wait, whoa. Now, I don't mean that. That's what, that's what I'm saying. He was a little man. Listen to the account that speaks of Moses in Deuteronomy, Numbers in the Older Testament. Now, Moses was a very humble man. Put a little bracket in there and say, little man. That's what humble man means. He, he, he was a little man, more little, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses. Think about Jesus talking about little people and the Beatitudes. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. Uh, they're meek. They're hungry and thirst, to, thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They're little people. Would you, would you let me use those terms? 
that's a, that's a little person who's like that. And, and, and the essence of what a little person is, little people, is that they, they recognize at a gut level, not, not just in their minds, but they recognize at a gut level that they can't make it without help from outside themselves. And, and some of them will go to friends and, and loved ones and get help, and that's, that's okay. But little people who are genuinely little realize that it's more, I need more help than my wife can give me, and more than my friend can give me. I've got to have God's help, or I just can't make this. I can't make it in eternity when I stand before him, and I can't even make it now. Now, that's a little man. That's a little, little woman. That's a little teenager. That's a little kid. I remember seeing a man on Ivory Coast the first time I went there. I've been to West Africa quite a few times. And the uh, first time I went there, I was alone. And uh, we went to a village for a, a service. And, and uh, small, you know, small chapel, maybe, I don't know, 30 people there. And then we went out into the courtyard out, outside the chapel, and it's under the trees, as you would see the pictures of pictures in Africa. And uh, we're getting ready to walk down the road, because down the road there's a stream, and we we're going to have a baptism service, so we went down the road uh, after this. But as I was standing there with some others, I looked off to the side, and I saw some men gathered around a fire. They had built a fire. and I don't think you ever need a fire in Africa, because I'm from here, but um, they built a fire, and men were standing around it. And you could see one man who was turning away from the fire like this, but he was throwing things into the fire. And I went over and I began to ask, what, what is this? what's this about? He's throwing stuff in the fire. He's not even looking at the fire. And they said, those are fetishes. You know, you know, this is a coin, it's not a fetish, but a fetish is a, an object that you buy in the market or you get some other place. And, and you keep it with you because it's in honor of the spirit that the fetish stands for. And, and people who live in, in that kind of a culture, uh, the ones who don't find the truth in Christ, frequently live in this, this terrible place where you feel like there's spirits all around you and you can't do anything to control them. And so you get something that seems to favor them and make them leave you alone or look kindly on you. It's a terrible way to live. I've seen a lot of people live that way. And so what he was doing is he had become a Christian. And now he followed Jesus, and he knew he couldn't keep his fetishes anymore. So he asked the men of the church to come with him, build a fire. He'd take his fetishes, and he'd throw his fetishes in the fire. He was so afraid of, of the power of those spirits that he turned away from them. But he was even more aware of the great God he had saved, and that he was one of those little people. And that God could take care of him, so he was willing to throw away his fetishes. That's little people. Little people are like that. They're convinced that God will take care of them. Jesus talks about little people. In fact, he talks, this is really interesting to me, he talks about becoming like a little person. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Man, underline that in your mind. Unless you change and become, which says, even though I'm not a little person in my mind and my heart now, I can become that. <laughs> yeah, there's hope for me. I, I, can, I can somehow become this. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but realize, little children don't have anything to offer when you say, I want to become like a little child. They have to come with their hands empty and say, God, I got nothing. I, I just need from you. I, I need your forgiveness. I need your help. I need your strength. I, I, I have nothing I can bring to you to pay for it. And I'm not going to come and pay for it in the future because I still won't have anything worthwhile to pay for it with. So I just need you. That's the way little children are with their parents. And what God is calling us to do is to become like little children and depend on him like, like my grandkids depend on me. You know? 
And they know their need. And they know I can fill it. And so they ask me. And they don't think twice about it. That's what God's looking for. Become like little children. Now, when somebody has already become like a little child, he hears the angel's announcement. Good news of great joy or great news of good joy. I've forgotten which it is. But he hears that announcement. And he says, oh, yeah, I'll take that. Why? Well, because he knows he can't get it on his own. He's a little man. He's a little woman. They're little people. Not there yet. I get it. I understand that. I wasn't there either. I know what that's like. Didn't become a Christian until I was 22 in the service in Japan. And I was trying my best. I was doing the best I could. But I wasn't there where I could see myself as a little person. But Jesus, Jesus says you can become a little child. That means you can become a little person. And the question for me, as I, as I want to answer uh, before I quit this morning, is how do I become like a little child? How do I become a little person? Becoming a little person. Let me give you two options. I think they might be helpful. I hope they are. Number one is the possibility of a crisis that enters your life. I've seen people who walk through a, a crisis in their life, and it might be, it might be addiction and recovery from addiction. It might be a spouse walking out on you. It might be a, a failure in terms of you and honesty and integrity. It might be uh, illness. You know, it could be the death of a loved one. It's a crisis, and it's a kind of crisis that you look at and you say, I can't do this, and so you turn to God and you cry out to God and you say, oh, God, please, I can't do this. Please help me. Please rescue me. I'm going down, and I'm not going to get up again if you don't rescue me. Now, nobody votes for one of those. Nobody says, oh, I'd like to have one of those so I can be a little person. <laughs> Anybody want to do that? No, you don't want to do that. Well, what I'd suggest to you is if you would take the current crisis that you're facing, if you would take the current difficulty that you're facing, if you would take the current um, thing that seems to be washing over you and you can't seem to get a handle on it, if you would take that and say, God, I'm seeing something through this and just look at it and realize that God is sending that and it might be even less than the ones I've suggested in terms of intensity, but if you'll take that and, and you'll turn to God and you'll say, oh God, I gotta cry out to you because I can't do this. I really can't. Then it can have the impact of making you a little person. So that's one possibility. I got another possibility, and I, I pull out my coin again because it's got two sides. Um, before God, and some of you will recognize these words, take the fourth step in the AA manual. You know what that is, don't you? Some of you do. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Yeah. That's especially for those of us who look pretty good. Because I've never done that, and I've never done that, and I've never done that. But boy, if I knew my wife wouldn't know about it, I bet I would. Okay. If I knew that my boss wouldn't catch me in it, I bet I would. That's what it means to take a searching moral inventory of yourself. It, it is search your own heart and your own life. And though you may not have done something, although we've probably got lots of those things we've done, if you have to go further and you're making this inventory Begin to think about the things you would do that are off limits if nobody would know about it. And that changes the dynamic, doesn't it? It looks different that way. Yeah. 
And, and what happens is frequently I have seen that that kind of honesty in terms of my own heart or, or somebody else's heart will drag them to the cross. It, it'll just drag them to the cross because they know for the first time maybe that they need forgiveness. Okay, turn the coin over. The second side of the coin that I'm suggesting is run through the evidence of your dependence on others. The reason I'm proud is because I think I've done so much. <laughs> the reality is that so many people have done so much for me. That's why I seem to have accomplished so much. I mean, you look at it. You look at it for just a minute. I think that your success is largely dependent, and mine, and mine, on where I was born, on who my parents were, on how my sister treated me. She picked on me. It was not good. But my education, the opportunities I had to travel, the places I went in ministry in terms of, of churches. And you know what? I am responsible for about 10% of that. Most of that came from other people. Most of it came from the friendliness or the warmth or the integrity or the, or the love and the commitment of other people. And it's not because I was so sharp in getting it there. It's because they poured things on me. And in fact, if you want to be honest, God poured things on me through other people. And as a result, I was able to do things that other people look at me and say, oh, you've succeeded. No, 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 no. No, God has been generous with me. And I put those two sides of the coin together the one side, I look at myself honestly in terms of my morality, which I think is so good and so cool, and I recognize that I would do some things differently if I thought I could get away with them. And then I turn the coin over and I realize that I'm not the one who's accomplished so much. God has done things in my life and through me using other people and opportunities that I had no control over. And you put those together, and what it makes me want to do is cry out to God to give me forgiveness. It makes me want to cry to God and say, oh God, I, I can't put this thing together. I didn't put it together before. I'm not going to put it together in the future. Would you come into my life and forgive me and save me and cleanse me? And what I'm saying to you this morning is if that's where you are today, if you're at a place where you know you need a Savior from your sin and you need a Father who will come to you and take care of you in the days ahead, and you need a Holy Spirit who will empower you, then today is the day in which you need to come to Jesus. Yeah, you need to come to Jesus. That's what he says. You come to the Savior. And we talk about the long journey that we enter onto once we've come to the Savior, and I think that's important, and I talk about that likewise. I, I gotcha. But there's a lot of us who have gone through life, and we've never been told that every journey has to start someplace. Well, we know that intuitively, obviously. I'm going to get in my car and start home in a few minutes, and, and, and then I'll get home, and it's going to be a journey between here and there. But I'd never get home if I didn't start someplace. When I started my journey with Jesus Christ was when I was 22 years old, kneeling beside my bed in the barracks all alone, convicted that I had never come to faith in Christ, and I was lost, and, and I couldn't handle life the way I was living, and I, couldn't, I, I didn't have the strength, I didn't have the wisdom, and God changed my life in that. The journey came afterwards, but listen, if you've never started the journey, then you can't go on the journey. So what I'm saying to you this morning is, come to the Savior. And you come to the Savior simply by starting, by saying, Jesus, I believe now who you are. You know, maybe I've believed it before, but I've never acted on it. I believe and I'm acting on who you are. You are the Son of God. 
You came to die for my sins. And if nobody else was around town, you'd come anyway and you'd die for my sins. And so I now, I now welcome you and your forgiveness and I confess that I am who you say I am and you are who you say you are. Okay? You're the son of God. I'm a lost guy in need of your forgiveness. Would you come into my life and take me on this journey of faith? And listen, here's the last part. I give you my heart. This is not fire insurance, folks, where I pay for it once and then I forget about it until the end. No, no, this is, I give you my heart, Lord. I receive your forgiveness, and in response to that, I give you my heart. Now, if you're ready to do that today, then you're ready for the journey to start today. For me, it was June 8th, 1966. For you, it'll be December 14th, 2014. You will never regret starting on the journey. I'm not going to embarrass you. I can't do that anyway. You're going to do what you want to do. But I am going to ask you to have a conversation with God in the quietness of the next few moments as I prompt you. I'm going to tell you how you can take the first step in the journey, how you can start the journey, and then, then, then I'm going to urge you to do something special after that so you can continue on in that journey. But I'd love to pray with you and ask God to work in our lives right now, right now. So would you pray with me, please? Let's close our eyes and, and uh, be quiet before God. Lord Jesus, you came because you loved us. It's amazing. It's just amazing. And we are grateful today, and we don't always live like that, and we don't always say that, but God, being reminded of it, we are amazed by your grace and your goodness and your love. I'm most concerned today, Lord, uh, by people who have not started the journey, maybe didn't know you have to start it, like I didn't know it. So somebody confronted me with the, with the idea, you've got to start someplace and need to take the step, start the journey by trusting in you, Jesus, born of a, a virgin as a baby, but you didn't stay there. You grew up to show us how to live, and then you showed us how to die. You gave your life in our place on the cross, and you resurrected from the grave to guarantee that we likewise could live forever in your presence. But right now, Lord, there are men and women here, teenagers who need to start the journey, and I want to help them. So friend, if you want to start the journey today, just say it simply. Jesus, forgive me. I, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe I'm lost without you. And I don't want to be lost, Lord. Not here, not in eternity. So I trust you. And I give you my heart. I want to follow you. Do your work in me today and every day throughout my life. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in the hearts and lives of people. Would you continue the work that you've begun today, drawing men and women back from wherever they've drifted, if they're already followers of the Christ, and bringing men and women over the line of faith to say, yes, Jesus, come in. Thank you for what you're doing now, Lord. Continue that, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just one minute before you get up. Tell somebody. Okay? Tell somebody. You can talk to me later. I'll stay up here for a while if you want to. You can talk to one of the pastors here. They're here. One of the ministry leaders, one of the elders. Maybe you're here with your husband and you need to tell him. Or kids need to tell their parents. Yeah, I started the journey today. That will help start you in the right direction. God bless you. You'll never forget it. You'll never regret it. God bless you.